Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Coming up on today's episode, everyone is talking about Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine. But how much do you actually know about him? What we thought we'd do is take a look at the man who's become a 21st century war hero, appearing in T-shirts on social media, vowing to remain in Kyiv despite the Russian onslaught. So we've got a fascinating profile coming up on the podcast today. Before that, as ever, we kick off with our economist panel on a Monday. It is Liberace. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Let's start with this question of exactly how generous Britain should be in its offer to Ukrainians uh, seeking uh, sanctuary from uh, the Russian invasion. Libby, your take on this, first of all, um, the government clearly faced a lot of criticism, not least Kevin Foster's suggestion that they might be able to come in under the seasonal workers scheme to pick fruit. Um, what do you think the UK government should be doing? I think I think a great deal of generosity is is called for here. I, it was an extraordinary suggestion that all Ukrainians are fit for is to pick the potatoes or whatever. It's, it's just absurd. It's a sophisticated country, people of all trades, people who could contribute. And also do remember people who, if this gets resolved, and pray God it is, and Putin's regime falls, if this is all resolved in the end and Ukraine is a peaceful, decent country again, people will go back just as the Poles have gone back. Back in enormous numbers. I always thought they would. I had a young Polish friend who came here when they were first allowed to the EU, and it was always quite clear she loved Poland, she loved her country, she wanted to go back. So give people sanctuary while they need it, for heaven's sake, and treat them with the respect that their own quality, their own professional abilities deserve. You know, once you start on the fruit and potato picking thing, you know, you, you really are sort of almost racist. And I suppose that's the thing, isn't it, um, Rachel, is that this it feels like the government is still in sort of vote leave campaign mode. It's not yes, really rising to the occasion. Complete sort of clash between the kind of moral courage, the dignity and decency of the re- Ukrainian people, you know, taking up arms and fighting to defend their country. And then the sort of point scoring, petty bureaucracy angle of the British government. I mean, the uh, Moreland cartoon in the Times this morning sums it up brilliantly. It's a burning Mm. building. And then there's a pretty Patel shouting, I said, are you willing to pick fruit? You know, and the flag of of Ukraine is flying from the burning building. As, As Libby says, this is about refuge and sanctuary 
Uh, it's not about people wanting to be economic migrants. They're fleeing uh, persecution and war. Um, so it's it's a sort of muddling up of the kind of take back control uh, of on economic migration that um, Vote Leave pushed during the Brexit campaign, and the sort of ne- necessity of compassion and decency at a time of war dealing with refugees. And not least because somebody uh, Kevin's just been in touch uh, saying uh, the UK government to Hong Kongers, if you have the money, we have the apartments. UK government to Ukrainians, if you have the limbs, we have the fruits. And that's, uh, that's, uh, yeah. that's mm. you know, there, 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 it was a huge, big open offer that Boris Johnson made to people in Hong Kong uh, that they could come to the UK uh, as part of what he, I think he described as a sort of Britain's moral responsibility towards Hong Kong, given the treatment uh, of Hong Kongers by China. It just seems extraordinary they've got this so, so wrong, Libby. Yeah, it is. But there will always be people who will jump up and find a small, tiny political point to make on the back of a huge disaster. We're seeing it in a lot of areas. You know, people sort of popping up and saying, actually, this is all America's fault. This is all, it's all everyone's fault except Putin's. Uh, you know, you, people will always hop up with mad little thoughts on on the edge of a big disaster because they can't take in the big disaster. And I'm sorry there are people that stupid in government. And I hope there are not that many. I actually think they're probably going to do a U-turn on it, don't you? I think I thought yeah, Ben Wallace on the radio yeah. this morning sounded deeply uncomfortable when he was asked about it, the Defence Secretary. Um, you know, he didn't really want to get into the immigration question, but when he was pressed, he basically said, we're looking at it, we're looking at it again. And so I, I, I suspect even as soon as today, there'll be some kind of clarification and a more generous scheme will be announced. But you had, I mean, over the weekend, you had uh, Pretty Patel on Twitter accusing, I think it was David Lammy, amongst others, who's the Shadow Foreign Secretary, of pu- pushing disinformation. Mm. Um, and then she was linking to the government's own website, which in itself made clear that they were... They hadn't opened it up, and the, the best they were offering was um, for the, the sort of close family members, and that's a very tight group. That's mm. you, you know that is you know literally sort of husbands, wives, and children. I think rather than you know wives, not even grandparents, yeah, or, you know, parents. Um, mm. uh, and uh, and that was the that's the sort of reaction. And it does feel like there's this sort of slight split in the cabinet. Um, Rachel, were you saying Ben Wallace? Ben Wallace actually, somebody asked earlier who's the coordinator. He does seem to be coming, you know, doing a pretty sterling job Ben Wallace you know this morning he was making clear he didn't think that people should go to Ukraine and fight uh, in yes. direct com- you know contradiction with what Liz Truss was saying on the media yesterday yeah he's sounding like a real grown-up isn't he in this crisis um so he's not point scoring he's got a serious job and he's doing it seriously um I thought what he said about Munich right at the beginning of the crisis was a bit silly. That was his only um, yeah. uh, slightly political... Yeah, there was a whiff of Munich to the, to the, the, the sort of suggestion mm. of, uh, of negotiating a settlement. Nego- exactly. Um, but since yes. then, he's been really um, sensible, grown-up, uh, serious, credible figure. I would have thought Tory MPs and Tory members would be looking at him thinking, is he a future leader? That's interesting, yeah. I was... Mm. 
Yeah, well, something I was fascinated by was was uh, Liz Truss suddenly picking up on this romantic idea from the 1930s and the volunteer brigades and nurses and the Mitford brother and Orwell and the rest who all went out to Spain. Uh, you know that she would she she would almost encourage people to go out and fight alongside the Ukrainians. I mean, you do slightly wonder a how are they going to get in? How easy is that going to be? And b how much use will they actually be the amateur heroes? But it was interesting. Uh, I'm not condemning Liz Truss for saying it or others for saying it wouldn't work. I'm just saying how fascinating that this romantic idea is still with us, that we still remember the young Brits who went out to Spain in the 30s. Um, and I think that there is a kind of a moral, a moral impetus in that, which, which it's, hard to, it's hard to talk down. I think it's impractical, but I, I thought it absolutely fascinating that, that she suddenly upped and said that. Well, somebody's asked an interesting question. Louise is texting, how is it different for Brits to go to Ukraine to fight than, say, Brits going to Syria to fight slash help? <laughs> um, and that's... Uh, that, yeah. I, I, I do think it's a difference we can sort of work out in terms of bombs. <laughs> Bombs and attacks and terrorist attacks. I don't, I don't think any of the Ukrainians have been causing terrorist attacks in the UK, have they? Well, no, but I suppose there were, there were examples, I think, of Brits going to fight Islamic State, it, fight against Islamic State as well as fight for Islamic State. But, yes, but, a few, but they yes. Were, they were encouraged, you know, they were told quite explicitly, don't go and do that. I mean, I do think it's an extraordinary thing when you have a cabinet minister encouraging people to go and mm. fight in a, in, a, in a foreign war. And the, the military, people who've had anything to do with the military, so Tobias Elwood, the, the Conservative chair of the Defence Select Committee in the Commons, sort of tweeted something about, um, you know, you'll just be putting not only your own life in danger, but also the lives of the people who you uh, are going to have to look after you if you mm. suddenly turn up. Um, it, so it's a kind of, it's, as, as yes. Libby says, it's romantic, yes. but it's unrealistic and actually potentially dangerous. So it's also sort of... that did happen in the Spanish Civil War as well. I mean, they they did sometimes put locals in in considerable danger by being, you know, there are anecdotes about this about by being too gung ho and not really knowing what they're doing, not being soldiers. Mm. And I suppose there's mm. also it, it also slightly muddies the question of uh, we are clearly not sending British troops into Ukraine. Uh, we are offering them support, financial support, you know, military support in terms of hardware and so on. But then if you've got the government telling Brits to go there. That 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 muddies the whole question, doesn't it? Of us not putting boots on the ground, we're not sending. You know, we're just sending a sort of dad's army. Yeah, and it seems irresponsible, mm. doesn't it, to have a cabinet minister really saying that? Um, I, I, I'm I'm I would have thought that's not the official government position. Certainly, it wasn't what Ben Wallace was saying. Yeah, no, exactly right. Um, mm. Just finally, but um, uh, just because there are other other things uh, worth discussing, and I thought your column today was terrific, Libby, um, in the paper today about. The way that young people, young people who, who get up to things that young people sometimes do and the extent to which that hangs over them forever. Yes, I wanted to pick up on a campaign um, uh, which got drowned out last week. Um, it was a demand for more subtle and nitpicking over the matter in the new uh, the new bill, which is ping-ponging between the Lords and the Commons, Police, Crime, Sentencing and Courts Bill. Uh, we need more subtle nitpicking over the matter of records because we have this 10-year-old disclosure and barring service, the DBS, which has a thing called enhanced checks in which a simple brawl or a very minor 
drug offence over 35 years ago can still be casting a shadow over people's whole lives in enhanced checks. Uh, and the, there's a, a ridiculous belief that a, a caution is just a slap on the wrist. But actually, you know, one person straight under the line says, yeah, no, it's not actually, you know, it's still stopping my son getting jobs. And employers are very risk averse. 50% of British employers say flatly they would not employ anyone with any criminal record. But that could be something very, very minor. And the thing is, teenagers don't get told this. You know, nobody warns people who are sort of rising to 18 that actually, you know, it's all very well saying, oh, that rapper is a great star and Stephen Fry is a national treasure and, you know, Cheryl Cole on The X Factor, oh, fabulous. And actually, all none of them would get a job in a care home. You know, that's just how it works. And so it just seemed worth uh, pointing all that out for once. I thought it was really interesting. What do you make of it, Libby? Um, Rachel, sorry. (laughs) I thought it was really fascinating. And the the point of the sort of criminal justice system should be um, a restorative justice that people can, you know, you pay your price to society, but then you can move on and you contribute again. Um, And I think there's a wider point, actually, about even things that people say or write or tweet or put on Facebook online in their teenage years can come back to haunt them much later on. Yeah, um, We see that with politicians all the time. But actually, um, you know, you've had employers going through Facebook and looking at people's posts. Um, so I think young people need to be incredibly careful about what they say and do because it does, um, it can affect increasingly. There's a record of, of um, your silly youthful indiscretions. Libby Purvis and Ray Sylvester there. And of course, you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, a profile of a president. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. It's day five. Fighting continues and many cities are being shelled. Talks between Ukraine and Russia were underway on the Belarusian border. Ukrainian delegates want an immediate ceasefire and the withdrawal of Russia's troops from the country. The UN's refugee agency says more than 500,000 people have fled Ukraine. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has called for the European Union to grant his country immediate membership. 
The European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said Ukraine belongs in the EU and wants and the bloc wants them to join. Well, the Times is reporting that more than four hundred thousand, sorry, more than four hundred Russian mercenaries are operating in Kiev with orders to assassinate the Ukrainian president and his government. So what I wanted to do this morning was take a look at the man who is defying the Russian advance and has been held around the world as a 21st century war hero. This is the story of Volodymyr Zelensky, aged just 44. He's a former comedian who played a president on TV before taking on the job for real, discovering in the worst possible way that politics is no laughing matter. Volodymyr Zelensky was born into the Ukrainian Soviet, Soviet Socialist Republic, part of the wider Soviet Union, on January the 25th, 1978. He would turn 11 before the collapse of the USSR and the birth of an independent Ukraine in 1991. No one, least of all Zelensky himself, could imagine that he would one day become president. Never mind that he would lead his country in a bloody war with Mother Russia. He grew up in Krivyer, a, a town where some 250 miles south of Kiev, the family lived in an apartment block with 800 flats, which was nicknamed the Ant Hill. His father, Alexander, has a reputation for being strict with students at the Economic Institute in the town, where he still works as a professor of, community, of computer science, uh, where um, many students still know him. Despite studying law, as a teenager, Vladimir began competing in team comedy competitions, a fixture of the Ukrainian comedy scene. His team, or troupe, was named 20, uh, 95 Kvartal, after a district of his hometown. They performed in the Major League of Comedy contests for five years before he broke into TV, starring in a number of shows. He even went on to win the first series of Dancing with the Stars, the Ukrainian version of Strictly, either performing one dance while wearing a blindfold. Into the cards as a meditation After his success on television, there followed a successful career in films. Итак, обратите внимание, справа по курсу Район проживания многих представителей русского Зеленский starred in this, the romantic comedy Love in the Big City, set in New York, and its two sequels. There were also eight first dates, which spawned two follow-ups. Most of his films were in Russian rather than Ukrainian. Then in 2014, he was chosen as the voice of Paddington for the Ukrainian redubbing of the smash hit film in the Cold Kingman and its sequel starring Hugh Grant. Yes, no? Mr. Brown, it's very brutal. After that, he in 2015, he starred in a new satirical show called Servant of the People. In the show, Vladimir Zelensky played a history teacher plucked from obscurity after a video went viral 
showing him ranting against Ukrainian corruption. In the show, the teacher went on to be elected president on an anti-corruption platform. It ran for three or four years. And then on New Year's Eve in 2018, in an extraordinary case of life imitating art, Vladimir Zelensky announced he would be running for president himself in the 2019 election. The name of his party, the same as the TV show, Servant of the People. His campaign was almost entirely virtual, addressing voters on social media and YouTube. He's gone on to use those skills in recent days, as we've all seen. He won the election in 2019 with 73% of the vote in the second round, defeating the incumbent Petro Poroshenko. Using his inauguration speech, he sought to strike a new tone for the still young country. Dear Ukrainians, he said, after my victory in this election, my six-year-old son said, Hey, Pop, I was watching TV and they said Zelensky is president. So that means I'm president too, right? In the moment, it sounded like a child's joke, but later I understood that it was the truth because every one of us is president now, Zelensky said. Not only the 73% of Ukrainians who voted for me, all 100%. It's not mine. It's our common victory. And it's our common chance for which we take shared responsibility. It wasn't just me who took the oath. Each of us put our hand on the Constitution. And each of us swore loyalty to Ukraine. We are all Ukrainians. His early attempts to clear out the higher echelons of Ukrainian politics were often blocked by the parliament. But in July 2019, his Servants of the People Party won the first ever majority in the Ukrainian parliament. Tackling the image of Ukraine as a corrupt country has been the focus of his presidency. We fight with corruption. We fight with this. Fight each day. But please, please stop to say that Ukraine is a corrupted country. But because from now, it's, it's not truth. We want to change this image. It's Vladimir Zelensky talking about trying to change the image of Ukraine as a corrupt country. One of his big domestic focuses has been on infrastructure. Across the country, building sites are surrounded with hoardings declaring the Great Construction Programme of the President of Ukraine. Internationally, before the Russian invasion at least, he was perhaps best known worldwide for being dragged into the political soap opera of Donald Trump's presidency. It was claimed that during a phone call, Trump tried to pressure Zelensky into opening up an investigation into Joe Biden's son, Hunter, by threatening to withhold $400 million in US military aid if he failed to do so. Hunter Biden taking a seat on the board of Ukrainian gas company. The threat and subsequent investigation eventually led to Trump's first impeachment. And the witch hunt continues, but they're getting hit hard on this witch hunt because when they look at the information, it's a joke. Impeachment for that? That was Donald Trump. Well, in February 2020, the Senate acquitted Trump of the charge that he sought foreign influence from Ukraine in the US election. Although, of course, Donald Trump went on to lose the US election. Another key promise of Zelensky's presidential campaign was to end the war in the region of Donbass, where Russian separatists have been fighting to realign with Moscow. He faced heavy criticism from within Ukraine after seeking talks with Putin aimed at getting Russian troops to withdraw. Those talks ultimately failed. In the past six months, Putin has stepped up pressure, stationing tens of thousands of troops on the Ukrainian border while creating false flag incidents to wrongly claim grounds for military action to retake Ukraine as part of Putin's deluded vision of reversing the collapse of the USSR in 1991. 
The strategic and historical mistakes of Bolshevik heads in different periods of government building and economic and social policy led to our country's total collapse in 1991. The Soviet Union collapse is on their conscience. Of all the madness emanating from Putin, perhaps the most insane was his claim to be trying to denazify Ukraine, a country which had in Zelensky its first Jewish president. His great-grandfather and other great-uncles were murdered in the Holocaust. It also had its first Jewish prime minister. Well, since the invasion began, Zelensky has been a constant presence on the streets of Kiev and on social media. In this video, he appears with the most senior figures in the Ukrainian government, the leader of the faction or party, head of the president's administration, prime minister and advisor to the head of the president's office. The president is here, he said. We are here. We are in Kyiv. We are defending Ukraine. Often appearing in an army green T-shirt, he has vowed to remain in the Ukrainian capital, despite admitting that Russia has him marked down as the number one target and his family is the number two target. His wife, Alina, who he married in 2003, and their son and daughter are also still understood to still be in Ukraine. We're defending our land, the future of our children. Kiev and the key areas are controlled by our army. The occupiers wanted to set up their puppets in our capital. They didn't succeed. On our streets, in Kiev, in Vasilkov, Vizhgorod, and in the fields, there was a proper fighting going on. The enemy was using all its weapons, artillery, paratroopers, all weapons. Everyone should help us to stop this occupation. In a series of uh, public appearances, uh, President Zelensky has appealed to Ukrainians around the world to return and fight. If you can destroy the occupiers, please do it. Everyone who can come back to Ukraine, please come back to defend Ukraine. Everyone who can defend Ukraine abroad, please do it. His powerful speeches and messages have struck a chord around the world. He is a veteran German translator overcome with emotion. Russland is on the way to Bösen. Russland must ihre Stimme in UN verlieren. Ukraine, we wissen ganz genau, was we verteidigen. Slava Kosnamu, Nashamu, Soldat, Slava Ukraine. Well, world leaders have rallied to support him, with Boris Johnson seeking to be a strong ally to the Ukrainian president. Shortly after four o'clock this morning, I spoke to President Zelensky of Ukraine as the first missiles struck his beautiful and innocent country and its brave people, and I assured him of the unwavering support of the United Kingdom. That was Boris Johnson speaking last week. When he was first elected, Vladimir Zelensky said he would serve for only one five-year term. Since then, he's softened his stance, saying he would wait to see how Ukrainians felt about him. Now he is locked in a fight, not for his political life, but for the very survival of Ukraine itself. The election in 2024 is a very long way off indeed. Well, let's focus uh, again now on the Ukrainian president. Peter Conradi is the Europe editor of the Sunday Times and author of Who Lost Russia? How the World Entered a New Cold War. Morning, Peter. 
Morning. Uh, we've also got Andrew Roberts, the author of Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History. Morning, Andrew. Hello, morning. Uh, Peter, uh, describe for us, first of all, the sort of transformation. It was a bit of a, it was a joke when um, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky became Ukrainian president, having the guy who played him in a comedy show, uh, played the president in the comedy show, vowing to crack down on corruption, then gets elected president on a vow to crack down on corruption. There's a real sense, though, that he's rising to the occasion now in the worst of all circumstances. Yeah, he is indeed. I mean, to use that appallingly overused phrase, life imitates art. I mean, that, that's what happened. He was elected in 2019. He was best known to Ukrainians as, as the star of this TV programme, who, you know, history teacher who fights corruption, becomes president. And then here we are, here's the actor who played him, who fought corruption, who, who became president and vowed to, to fight corruption. I mean, that was um, the main thrust of his policy. That's what he said that he wanted to do during the first, uh, the first years of his presidency. Um, you know, he could never really have anticipated he was going to turn into a war president. In fact, at the beginning, it looked like he was going to perhaps be able to strike some kind of a deal with President Putin, certainly to calm things down a bit. Um, but, you know, he's been transformed into that role. And, you know, as we've seen in the, in the past few days, he's played it absolutely brilliantly. I mean, not just in terms of, of, presentational skills or maybe you know maybe it is the presentational skills that are the key thing you know he's really succeeded in keeping morale up in rallying ukrainians around him and i think more importantly really winning in the in the in the court of world public opinion i mean if you contrast the videos that he's been making the performances he's been doing from the streets of kiev you contrast those with the clips that we've seen of president putin looking like some Bond villain in his lair. I mean, it's just it's it's just an extraordinary contrast. I think that really says to anyone watching this, you know, this is simply good versus evil. Simplistic as it sounds. And I suppose um, Andrew Roberts in a war, being able to present good versus evil. That's that that that's not just a sort of sideshow. But uh, getting information out, winning the, the the propaganda war, the war of information is really important, isn't it? It's absolutely central, yes. And uh, what Peter was saying so right about morale, if you can keep your morale up, actually, and uh, and promise ultimate victory, um, people will go through anything um, to uh, to see that through. It's uh, it's what he's so brilliant at, um, and in a sense, he's using his Twitter feed in the same way that Winston Churchill used radio in the Second World War, is to speak direct to the people, never underplaying the peril but giving this concept of uh, of an ultimate victory, which is an extraordinary thing to do, considering they are, you know, fighting in, in their major cities. And how, I suppose that's the, it's the interesting thing there, that, that you talk about Churchill using radio, you know, we've seen um, wars played out on television, you know, certainly um, uh, during the Falklands War, the Iraq War, we've seen, you know, the, being able, the communication through television, Comical Alley and all all of that sort of thing. Hmm. This is the first major conflict being played out on on social media in this way, Andrew? That's right, yes. I mean, I think Churchill would have been great on Twitter, by the way. Um, he was uh, he was pretty good at, uh, at expressing himself in sort of 240 characters or fewer <laughs> if he needed to. But, um, but the, the sheer courage, the, the bravery, making it quite clear he was ready to, Zelensky is ready to fight and die in the capital, even though there are reports of hit squads, you know, assassination hit squads in the capital, which is something Winston Churchill at least didn't have to deal with. Um, those 
um, would, I think, um, terrify most people. And yet there he is, also using humour. That uh, that remark um, about, I don't want to ride, what I want is ammunition, is, uh, I mean, it's uh, it's black humour of a kind, but it's it's funny. Um, he's uh, he's very good at identifying heroes of the Ukraine, uh, deriding neutrals, and showing no fear of Putin. And that's another essential thing that comes straight from the Churchill playbook: is you don't uh, you don't show fear of uh, your opponent. It's a small uh, thing, Peter, but an example of his of his ability to communicate in the twenty first century. I mean, literally, just in the last minute, he's been tweeting about having had a conversation with the Prime Minister of Japan, uh, thank for the strong support and the and the funding, but posting it both in Ukrainian and in English to give it the broad, you know, broadest possible uh, audience. Um, how, Peter, from your, your perspective, how have European leaders, including Boris Johnson, reacted to him as a leader? I mean, I think they've, they, they've, they, they've reacted very positively. And I think there's been a real change. I mean, it was quite interesting. I was following the Munich Security Conference, which was uh, like 10 days ago. Um, when he appeared, and it was it was quite interesting. At that point, um, the West, or say Britain and America, were still suggesting, or were suggesting already, that war was really imminent. He was trying to to to, to laugh it off a little, or to say, you know, you've got your intelligence, I've got my intelligence, I believe it. So there was a there was a degree of friction, I think, that was on that was on show there. People questioned whether it was wise for him to have actually gone to Munich as it was for, just on a day trip, in fact, to, to address the conference. But I think since then, since that moment of kind of clear tension in public, everyone really has, 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 has rallied around him, not just, I think, because of his performance, but also because of just the sheer reality of the situation that what we face is a, is a completely unprovoked attack by Russia on Ukraine. And where, I suppose it's one thing, you can't actually win a war on, uh, on Twitter, um, when um, you see how it's actually playing out on the ground, Andrew, um, what do you think will be the ultimate outcome of this? Will these talks, do you think, lead to anything? Or, I mean, is the actually the real concern that um, impressive though it is that Ukrainians, emboldened by uh, the messages from their president, have so far held back the Russian forces? Actually, is it possible that, you know, there's, there's two players in this and, and Putin is a unpredictable um uh man at the best of times and that actually he could he could actually step things up to be the appalling results precisely i mean i think that's uh, unfortunately the way that it looks like it's going to go of course we'd all love these talks to uh, to result in putin being humiliated and the russian army leaving ukrainian uh, soil but um i can't see that that's in um, in Putin's long-term political interest either to, to, to be humiliated. So I'm afraid what I fear is that um, he's going to use some of these weapons that we know from, uh, from the CIA satellites as are being brought up uh, into Ukraine, these, these sort of bunker busters, which are going to flatten huge areas of, uh, of Ukraine at the loss of, of tens of thousands of lives. I'm afraid that's much more likely than there's going to be some kind of a back, back down by Putin. And just, Peter, just finally, uh, Peter, as the Europe editor, the shift in European governments over the last five days has been extraordinary, hasn't it, in terms of their their willingness to countenance things they previously wouldn't, you know, the swift, pay, you know, withdrawing from the swift payment scheme seemed completely off the table five days ago. Exactly. And I mean, the most important, perhaps the most symbolically important was, I think, the decision by the German government on Saturday to actually 
send weapons and send considerable amounts of weapons to Ukraine because there'd been the argument before that they couldn't send lethal weapons to uh, a conflict zone and so on. And there was much mockery of the German government when all they sent was a few helmets. So, you know, yes, they're really, we're seeing a huge stepping up in the amount of military supplies that are being sent. And, you know, we've seen the economic sanctions, which in the short term, at least, are having quite a dramatic effect um, on in terms of the collapse of the ruble this morning, the collapse of the Russian stock market, and things, you know, like a run on Russian banks. This is sort of really bringing the war home to every individual Russian. When they see this sort of kind of chaos beginning to erupt around them, it means they, they'll be less willing to believe the Russian propaganda that's being pumped out in their direction, suggesting this is just a, a limited military intervention in the east of the country, which is the impression that Putin is trying to give his home audience. It's been really good to speak to you and fascinating just to sort of take a step back and uh, and look at the, the, the man at the centre of all of this. Peter Conradi, Europe editor of the Times, of the Sunday Times, apologies, and author of Who Lost Russia? How the World Entered a New Cold War. Also, thanks to uh, Andrew Roberts, author of Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from those who made history. I love the idea that Churchill would have been great on Twitter. He probably would. He was very good at um, his sound bites. Uh, we'll fight them on the beaches. would definitely fit in a tweet. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?